working our way through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. The topic this morning is do not throw away your confidence. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. I hope in some form or another you have your Bible with you. Like, don't just rely. It's nice to have this, and it helps us to see some things all together in the kind of video form, but you need your own Bible with you when you go to church. You'll see that phrase, do not throw away your confidence. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So the affliction he's talking about isn't migraines or arthritis. It's, it's affliction that comes from other people, persecution that results in affliction, it's for your faith in Christ. 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, so some have been in prison for their faith, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, and an abiding one. In other words, one that couldn't be plundered by anybody. Now, here's the therefore. What are you leading up to? Therefore, 35, do not throw away your confidence. Notice that it's not lose your confidence. It's casting it aside. this This is useless. Do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. Just, just pause there for a minute. I'm, he tells them, uh, your confidence in Christ, it has a great reward. Don't pitch it aside just because the going is very rough right now. And he, and he tells them that because after you've lived the Christian life for a while, you can, keep, you can keep doing the things that you're doing just out of a sense of habit or raw duty long after you you've actually ceased appreciating the value of what you're doing. So so the outward action, the routine keeps going, but what's, what's long died out in people like us can be the treasuring of what we do and why we do it, the, the savoring of it. Don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. You you don't see it yet in the middle of the muddle that you're in. You don't feel it yet. 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, quote, yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. That's Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. End of quote. But but we, 
we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who, who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. We want so much, O Holy Spirit, that you would come and enliven the things we know so they are treasured in our hearts so that they give us confidence and endurance. That nothing of all your good grace in our hearts gets glossed over lightly, but that everything feeds, everything transforms, everything nourishes, everything enlivens. And there's not one of us who can do that for ourselves. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and touch our hearts. As we gather around your word this morning, let it be living bread. In Jesus' name. Amen. So a weighty part of developing confidence in Christ comes from not confining your thoughts exclusively to just the present moment of your existence. This passage is about thinking back to the past and it's about thinking forward to the promise. And it's hard for us to push our thoughts in different directions because the present moment uh, sucks all of our energy into it. It's the part we see. It's the part we feel. It's the part that brings joy. It's the part that hurts. So the present moment, right now, 1028... February 11th, 2018. This is the moment that fills up your senses. I see you, you see me, you hear me, croakiness and all. You experience the present. You can only think about your past and your future. But your present, you live in it. The problem with that is this. The present moment, isolated from the past and the future... Just this present moment all by itself has limited spiritual nourishment in it. Let me explain that. Living in the present moment to the exclusion of the past and the future, it, it, can, it can drain trust in God rather than feed it in two ways. If the present moment is prosperous and delightful, it, it, it sucks all of our attention to itself. It fosters false security. It distracts. It tends toward an infatuation that can border on the idolatrous. It doesn't help us spiritually. Remember, <laughs> Moses says, when you go into the promised land and Everything's growing in the vineyards and it's milk and honey and it's wonderful. Remember, don't, don't forget, don't forget God, he tells them. That's what a delightful present can do. On the other hand, if the present moment is painful, uh, lonely, horrifying, 
depressing, full of discouragement, well, then it tends toward a fear and an anxiety, what our writer calls throwing away your confidence. What, what, what's the use? Because nothing's working. That's what the present can do, either on the positive or the negative side. And so, so the lesson here is that lives tethered exclusively to the present moment probably won't be lives with strong roots of enduring faith. And, and that this is our writer's primary concern. Remember, these Hebrew Christians that he's writing to that are being threatened for their confidence in Christ and being drawn back under the old covenant of Judaism. That this is our writer's primary concern is obvious from the way he immediately encourages them not to throw away their confidence. And, and he tells them how not to throw away their confidence by directing their attention in two different directions away from their present moment. I want to show you that in the text. First, he directs their consideration toward their past. That's in Hebrews 10.32. Where he says, recall the former days. Do you see that? Recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That's really interesting. Just because these days, just because these days are former days doesn't mean they're finished with them. That's how we think of our past, don't we? I mean, it's past. These former days, apparently, need to be dragged into their present days. They aren't finished with these former days yet. And the second thing he does is he pushes their thoughts not into the past, but into the future. You can see that in verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may, you may, it's not there yet, receive what is promised. So this, this reward, it's still in the future. All they have is the promise right now. You live a lot of life like that. A lot of your Christian life like that. All they have is the promise of future reward. These future days haven't arrived yet. But just because, just because these future days of reward haven't arrived yet doesn't mean they don't have present power. These still future days can help them right now. That's what this text is about. These Christians can draw present endurance. You have need of, see it? They can draw endurance out of a future that hasn't arrived yet. Here's where we are. Don't throw away your confidence. I know it's difficult what you're facing, the temptation, the persecution, the ridicule. We know it's been difficult because some, he says later on, have been put in prison. This is not easy stuff these people are facing. Don't throw away your confidence. You might be tempted to do that, but don't. Then he says, here's how you don't throw away your confidence. Look to the past. Look to the future. Because both of those will help you in your present moment. Okay, that's where we're at. The point is, there's a certain mental energy 
necessary for enduring faith. And how all of that works out is what this text is all about. Okay, you all with me? Okay, point number one. A wise management of past experiences is a great encouragement to future endurance and obedience. Let me show you that. It's in 32 and 33. So here's the instruction. Recall the former days when, this is important, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. I already explained the suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so, so treated. So there had apparently been a fairly recent time, a time after their conversion, when these Hebrew Christians had experienced a, a particularly brutal time of persecution for their newfound faith. That, that's what that, that passage means. We're not told a lot of specific details of this persecution, but, but we know some aspects from events we have recorded right in our New Testaments from the same period of time, right around the same period of time that these Hebrew Christians were facing their persecution. We know, for example, roughly around this time, Stephen had been stoned. Stoned is a term you have to explain. I mean they put stones, through stones, okay? Stoning. We know that the central church in Jerusalem, the mother church, had seen or was just about to see its pastor, James, executed. We know, we know that all of the churches throughout Judea were experiencing a time of intense persecution from Jewish leaders, the kind of thing these Hebrew believers were experiencing. Let me just, I don't want to take a lot of time. Let me just show you some examples of this right from the historical documents themselves. This is from 1 Thessalonians 2 and then some verses from 3, and I'm just going to read it fast. Paul writes and says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. That's important. But as what it, what it really is. Don't you love it? The word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, that's from the Jews, as they did from the Jews. This was widespread. Who, 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 who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind. Let me just read a little bit more. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So this is just for the gospel. That's where all this is coming from. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But, but wrath 
I know a lot of people don't believe in it anymore. Wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. See, this is, is that, you see, it's the same as casting away your confidence. You're not going to be rattled. For you yourselves know that we're, what? Destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. I warned you about this, Paul's saying. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Look, for fear that that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So this is the time frame. All sorts of bad things happening. All of this was in the recent experience of these Hebrew believers. and, And our writer, our writer, back in our text now, Hebrews 10... Our writer is telling them they need to actively recall. 32, verse 32. Recall. Recall these events back into active service in their present. And and the the, the question I want to ask, always ask questions of the text. That's how you study the Bible. The question I want to ask is, why did our writer demand these persecutors, persecuted believers... Rewind and replay their past experience of persecution. What, what, what good would that do? And to answer that question, we need to look at the way, the way these Christians are called to remember these difficult days in their past. Look at it carefully. It's in 1032. Still with me? But recall... There's there's the verb. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Do you see it? He doesn't just call them to remember their persecution. That's not quite it. He forces them to consider their past persecution as it related to their, their, their past conversion, after you were enlightened. So, so their persecution, he's saying, your persecution wasn't just bad luck. It was logically connected to their dedication to Christ Jesus as Lord. All of it came about immediately after they were enlightened. So so the way they were to remember their past persecution was they were to see it as the result, the result of their profession of Christ. Cause and effect. That's what he's he's pointing out. So, So this is our writer's way of encouraging these Hebrew Christians, first with with a little bit of a rebuke, where he says, you should have seen this coming. 
This is what always happens. This is the inevitable result of two kingdoms crashing into each other. This is the inevitable result of colliding loyalties and allegiances. So so this is a particular kind of remembering. It's a way of accurately calculating and assessing their past persecution. Let me let me put it let me put it this way. Another way, the wrong way to remember this past persecution would be to feel sorry for themselves. You look back and you say, you know what? Honest to Pete, this has been nothing but trouble from day one. Boy, this has been rough. Nothing good ever happens to Christians. All we're doing is spreading the gospel. What what did I ever do to deserve this? This being, remember, the plundering of your property, imprisonment. This is not somebody laughing at you at school because you're a Christian. This is you going home and you can't get into your house. You've been kicked out. You can't tap into your finances. This is totally unfair. That's what we get. That's what we get for following Jesus. Now, that's a spiritually defeating way of remembering. And it's not the kind of remembering our writer is calling these Christians to. The kind of recalling, verse 32, the kind of remembering that our writer demands, it's positive in nature. It's It's a kind of mental preparation for the present. It's it's setting up realistic expectations. It's the kind of remembering that would would bring about what the Apostle Paul called a readiness to stand firm in the faith, Ephesians 6.13. It's a remembering that's that's a bracing. This is the constant theme of the New Testament. We don't talk about it a lot, probably because so far we haven't needed to. But remembering past trials and persecution keeps us from being taken off guard. Helps us to buckle up for the inevitable countercultural ridicule that is only going to get worse for the church of Jesus Christ. Peter said the very same thing. Look at Look at uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Look at the first instruction. Do not, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to, to test you. Look at it. As though, as though something strange were happening to you. This is just weird. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And no one's saying it out loud, but there's a whole bunch of people saying, yeah, fat chance, blessed. When you are insulted for the name of Christ, not because, you know, something in your appearance, or, but because of your commitment to Christ, you're insulted. You're blessed. Why? Well, because the, the spirit of glory So Peter writes these people, uh, same general situation, people facing pretty intense persecution for their faith. And Peter says, do you, do you actually think this is strange? The main problem in Peter's text isn't unfair persecution of Christians. That's not what Peter's worried about. No, the main concern in this text is is the surprise that these Christians are experiencing in their persecution. They actually think something strange was happening. And Peter writes and says, "Where, where did you get that idea? Where did you get the idea that persecution for your faith is is something unexpected, something strange, something out of the ordinary? Now we come to the practical application of this past remembering their former persecution. Because because if we don't consider the inevitability of persecution from the surrounding culture and this increasing in measure, if if we don't come mentally prepared, we will be shocked. We will be surprised when it comes. Pastor Don, what's wrong with that? Well, just this. If we are shocked and surprised, if we aren't mentally ready for this kind of cultural rejection, if we find such treatment unnatural, then what we're going to do, if we aren't ready for it, we're going to look for the quickest ways to alleviate that kind of cultural ridicule and rejection. That's just natural. And that's the big danger. That's what, that's what has our writer in Hebrews upset. That's what's got Peter worried. You'll see in a minute. Jesus said exactly the same thing. Because the quickest way to alleviate cultural rejection is what? Well, the quickest way to alleviate it is to adapt to the expectations of that culture. Problem solved, right? The ridicule and the rejection disappear instantly. You just morph. This is the natural reflex reaction of weak-minded Christians who never think through what our writer describes as the natural expected reaction of the surrounding culture to Christ's kingdom. Let me show you one other person who said the same thing. Blessed are you and others, we don't use that word much, revile you and persecute you and 
utter or say. It looks like a King James word. Is that the ESV? And, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. That's what Peter said, right? Peter said exactly the same thing. Rejoice. Be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were, who were before you. I want to do something now. That I just want you to link two things. So, so get ready to think this through. Notice the similarity between Jesus' words in, in verse 11. Um, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Okay, just remember that. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And then compare that with our text, our writer's words in Hebrews 10.33, where he says these people were sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Well, here's the link I want to make. Jesus, people will say, they will say all sorts of things about you in a, in a public fashion. Our writer in Hebrews in 10.33 says sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And the link I want to make is there's always a, a public dimension to our culture's bitterness against the cause of Christ. Because Jesus isn't physically present right now. But the church is. And Christians must pay the visible cost of cultural embarrassment that Jesus faced when he was visibly here on earth. In other words, the price isn't just cultural ridicule and rejection. The price is public ridicule and rejection. It's being exposed to cultural ridicule and rejection. This will be visible. It'll be public that's why both Jesus and our writer in Hebrews very deliberately stress the kind of things people will say, utter all kinds of evil, Matthew 5.11. And the things we face publicly, Hebrews 10.33. Let's face it, church. Private rejection is no rejection at all. We can handle that. It's our reputation we value. Am I right? It's our reputation. It's our, it's our acceptance that means the most to us. And the spirit of the age knows all of this. So any follower of Christ will have to remember that the biggest... See that cross? We sang about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross... Here's what this text means. Any follower of Christ will have to remember that the biggest part of daily taking up the cross in discipleship, the biggest part is the calculated daily decision not to be thrown off stride by public ridicule from the culture in which we are called to live. That's too long a sentence. Let me try and make it simpler. The daily crucifixion of self. If any man would follow me, let him deny himself. You know the verse. Take up his cross daily and, and, and follow me. 
the daily crucifixion of self, okay, is 90%. Is 90% laying down our love of cultural acceptance. The daily cost of taking up our cross and following Jesus is 90% laying down our love for cultural acceptance. Point number two. Christians endure persecution in themselves, but they relieve it in brothers and sisters. I love this. In Hebrews 10, 33 and 34... Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, so that's what they were facing, and affliction. Sometimes being, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Why, why were those people in prison? Well, there's people who were in prison for their dedication to Christ. And the authorities, motivated by that, that Jewish hatred for the idea of Christ being the Messiah and the kind of kingdom he came to establish. So, so the authorities would take these Christian people, a lot of them Jews who had become Christians, and they would put them in prison. So they would, they would, they would separate them. They would separate them from the community of faith. And they would assume that that kind of rejection and that kind of isolation would soften their devotion to Jesus. And now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian in the church, and I hear about, I hear about uh, you know, my, my friend Ron Dyer, who's been in prison for his faith in Christ. And it's a risk for me, because... Because he's been publicly marked as rejected. It's a risk for me. But I go out on a limb in front of everybody and I say, I'm in the same camp. I'm in the same camp. You lock him up, you lock me up. I'm in. I'm in. It would be, here's, a, here's an illustration from recent history. Rini and I were watching a, a really good documentary. I think it was National Geographic. I don't know if anybody else saw it on the Holocaust. And, and a big part of the persecution of the Jews came from the way they would wear that yellow star. So it isn't just that they're persecuted, but they're marked as those, you could tell across the street, one of those. And so people would know you don't sell something to, see that person? Not him. You don't, you don't sell to him. Now imagine you're, you're, you're a, a business person. This is a very close illustration. And you know full well they're rounding up these people and putting them on trains and taking them away. But you say, come into my shop. I'll sell to you. That's what, that's what these people were doing. Compassion on those imprisoned. Not all Christians experience the same persecution to the same degree. But here's the point. Here's the point here. No genuine follower of Christ is satisfied with his own freedom. 
No genuine follower of Christ is satisfied with his own freedom. When I see or hear of others persecuted for their love for Christ, I'm immediately aware of our our common roots. I love the same Christ, the same cause of my brother's suffering. It beats in my own heart. No no wonder our writer calls these these, uh, Hebrew believers, he says they were, look at that, partners. Partners. And I prove, probably to myself, As much to anyone else, I prove my love for Christ outstrips all other loves in my heart by the way I sacrifice the very things that this world clings to for happiness and security. I sacrifice. I gladly give up. Here it is. um, Property. Possessions. This is... This is what makes people move and buy houses. This is what makes people start bank accounts. Property and possessions. That means everything to us. And these people say, I'll gladly accept the plundering of those things if I can go and minister to my brother who's being persecuted. Ouch. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't need four cars in the garage. There's persecuted Christians right now around the world who haven't heard the gospel. Persecuted people that haven't heard the gospel. Christians suffering. I'm a partner. Three. Just as recalling past times prepares the Christian for persecution, looking forward to the promise of reward gives confidence and endurance. Hebrews 10, 34 to 39. We're, we're, we're almost done. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Are these people just nuts? Why? Since, because, you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Still in the future. For yet a little while, The coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I wish I had more time. Here's what I'm just going to pull out of these verses. First, the essence of growing faith is a deeper cherishing of eternal goods over material goods. That's in verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a, had a better possession and an abiding one. By the measuring stick of all earthly values, our possessions and our property is what make us happy. That's why these enemies of Christ plundered the property. You want to hurt somebody, you attack what's dearest to them. So they plundered the property of these early Christians. That's in 34. And, and, and for these Christians, 
had their possessions been the root of their joy and security, that persecution would have been devastating to them. But it says they had something, say it, better. To place in the vacuum that was left by the forceful removal of their possessions. Here's the rub, let's face it. I could pass a survey around, and I'll bet you everyone in the room, myself included, we would all say, yes, I treasure Christ above all earthly possessions. We say we renounce the idolatrous attachment to money and all that it can bring. And then, and then people will start to say, where was, where was God when these Christians were, were, they were being persecuted? Today, too. Why doesn't he do something? Well, because only this kind of early church persecution will reveal what we treasure most and where our heart is and where our joy is. Think about it. This is precisely why the Apostle Peter says this in in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the, see, tested genuineness. See, before before these, this was just a professed genuineness. But after these, it's a tested genuineness. And that's, that's where this phrase comes. It's not just poetry. The tested genuineness that came through the trials and the removing the removing of their property and possessions here's what it proved that their faith really was more precious than gold i mean we all say that that's because we still have gold which perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result this is their faith in praise and glory honor at the revelation of Christ. So persecution reveals, it tests, it shows the watching world. Can you imagine all these people persecuting these Christians and they they had to go home at night, didn't they? They had to go home at night and say, "We, we took their house, we took their money, we put them in prison. What, what on earth do you have to do to these people? They won't renounce their Lord. powerful evangelistic tool but a very expensive one secondly people who profess the gospel consistently and boldly will experience persecution in this world that's the second thing I get there's nothing in the New Testament that would lead us to think it would be a strange thing to experience persecution just because well we're part of the North American church we don't do stuff like that In one form or another, everyone who follows Christ will face ridicule and loss for any visible devotion to Christ. Have you... Here's my concern. I know everything has to be done in ways that are age-appropriate and sensitive. I get that. But somehow, 
somehow. Have you ever explained this to your family? Have you ever somehow tried to make it clear to your kids that according to the New Testament, there are going to be times when they feel like aliens because they're committed to Jesus? Are you getting them ready for any of that? It's hard, Pastor. I know it's hard, but it's dangerous not to. Because they're going to be surprised. This is strange. Following Jesus? Persecute? What? Because we live in this little bubble. And there are hundreds of thousands of New Testament Christians who have been executed this last year for nothing more than their commitment to Jesus Christ. There's vast, vast segments of this planet where coming and doing what we're doing now is against the law. College student, university student, do you get up, pack your books, go do good work, study, learn everything, but do you go knowing that there are times when you're going to feel like an alien in that classroom, like nobody gets where you're coming from? Are you ready for that? Third, it takes constant, aggressive mental discipline to, to give weight to the still future promise of blessing. I do find it interesting in 34b, the way our writer works, words this. He actually describes the future promise as, as though it were an actual possession. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had, had a better possession. not accidental. It's the same kind of mental processing that the Apostle Paul argues, and this is our last verse. It's the same way the Apostle Paul faced his persecution. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing, it's doing something, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As, as we look, not to the things that are seen, That's the persecution, the suffering, the mocking, the ridicule, the loss. Everybody can see that. But we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Does anybody see that strange? We look. What are you looking at? Well, stuff you can't see. That's what I'm looking at. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. I love that word, weight an eternal weight of glory. You have that. No one can take it from you. Paul says he he faces persecution and suffering. He, He was stoned. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. He was left for dead. He was on trial, eventually executed. What was he doing? He was telling the world about Jesus. Well, that's not very fair. Paul says, yeah, you know what I do? I take this this eternal weight and I put it on the scales. Imagine a balance like this. And he puts the eternal weight of glory here and it just goes boom. And he says, you can pile whatever you want on here. Put whatever you want. This is more. And 
he says, this is what I'm, this is what I'm, I'm looking at all the time. I'm looking at it all the time. Carry that with you. Carry it to work. Carry it to school. Carry it to university. Look back to the past. Cultural ridicule is not new. Brace yourself. Buckle up. Look to the future to treasure better possessions. Put them on the scale every morning, no matter what you're facing. Feel the weight of them. Look at them. And that'll keep you, that'll keep you from ever casting away your confidence. 